Welcome to the Heart of Sports with Jason Springer and Jeff Cohen. We are thrilled to join you on 610 ESPN, ready to help you move into the weekend, talking about all the news in the world of sports. While it's a busy week in the world of Philadelphia sports, from the end of the Eagles season, which was disappointing last weekend, to the planning for the next one, whether we're talking Flyers and the emergence of Carter Hart as a potential goalie that will stay here, or Sixers as they try to continue building their team going forward or off-season Phillies news. We'll be back next week with a new show breaking that all down. This week, we've got a few of our favorite conversations for you from our prior shows we wanted to bring back. First, we bring you our talk with Cody Black, a golfer who qualified for the Web.com Tour, who tells us his story of qualifying with a patchwork set of clubs, shooting a 63 to make it after waking up that morning to learn his own set of clubs had been stolen. Can't imagine still after talking to him. Since then, luckily, his clubs have been found, and he actually made the cut in his first Web.com tour event, but we'll let you tell him tell you the story of what happened. Then, as we inch closer to spring training, with rumors still swirling about free agents like Bryce Harper and Manny Machado, talk of what else the Phillies will do, we'll look back at our interview with international scouting director for the Phillies, Sal Agostinelli, who talked to us about everything from the increase in the use of analytics and baseball in the Phillies system to the overall philosophy that the team has when it comes to scouting and what he looks for after his long career in this business to identify future prospects that can eventually be stars in this league. And finally, we've got our talk with Oliver Horowitz, the author of the book An American Caddy in St. Andrews, who told us everything from his favorite stories of caddying for celebrities to playing on the world's longest golf course that takes five days to complete in Australia, and even teeing off from Mount Everest while teaching Sherpas to golf. It was a fun few interviews that we had. We've had plenty that we liked, but these interviews gave us a chance to hear some different stories, some different lessons that people learned along the way. Um, gives you an idea for the other side of sports, the things that we don't talk about every day on the radio. So here are those interviews. We hope you enjoy, and we look forward to talking to you again next week why don't we find a feel good warm and fuzzy fun story uh it's not my golf game then <laughs> <laughs> it's not mine either why don't you introduce our guest and explain why he's joining us today jeff well i believe that we have cody blick on the line cody are you there yeah hey guys thanks for having me on hey cody thanks for joining us during the holiday season and happy holidays yeah likewise so um i grew up working at golf courses uh, i can't i can't play with my own clubs <laughs> How, so for our listeners who are not familiar maybe you could tell the story of of what happened when you went to go try out for the web.com tour recently yeah so i was uh i was playing okay through three rounds i was in like 75th place and top 40 get the guaranteed start so that was kind of our our number for the week was again to the top 40 and we woke up Sunday morning, and uh, you know it was a pretty normal normal morning. We were making breakfast, and the seven of us were were just gathered in the kitchen. And um, you know, my my coach's fiance walked into the kitchen and said, "Hey, hey Cody, where are your clubs?" And you know, I thought they were in the garage, obviously. And and uh, she said, "No, they're not." So I ran out there, and uh, and yeah, the clubs had been uh, stolen in the night. So so wait where so were they in the garage and did somebody just break into the garage? 
Yeah, we're not totally clear on that. They, they were in the garage all week, and uh, so we're not sure if it was somebody got into the garage and, and you know, took the clubs or if, if you know, whatever it was, an ex-renter or, you know, whoever. So, so what time were you supposed to tee off that day? So I was uh, I was right about I think it was like ten o'clock and uh, I, I probably found out at about eight. Oh my goodness! So so what do you so if your clubs are gone? I saw that you put up a on Instagram a five thousand dollar reward. <laughs> Did the clubs reappear by ten o'clock? <laughs> no, no. Unfortunately, they did not, and they have they have yet to come back to me. So uh, still no clubs. <laughs> no clubs. So, so so what do you do? So yeah, so I went to Instagram and and obviously offered the rewards for the, the clubs and and nothing nothing bit. So I called Titleist and uh, they were so good to me. I mean, they scrambled. There were like five, six of them scrambling around, trying to find you know heads and shafts that, that they could match and, and get somewhat close to what I play and. Uh, yeah, they, they figured it out, and they got me a set that was good enough, I guess. You, you were in the pro shop trying to get clubs. You, <laughs> you, and and then I saw that you, you actually had a cracked driver head it, in the process of that, too. I mean, could anything else have gone wrong for you that morning? <laughs> yeah, it was uh, it was a mess for sure. We uh, we were in the pro shop trying out wedges. Um, you know, we ended up having two rental wedges and the superintendent's uh, short irons and the head pro's four irons. <laughs> So uh, are you was, are you still playing with those clubs? <laughs> no, I'm not. Luckily, uh, Titleist was good to me, and they, they sent me a uh, replacement set. So you've got this hodgepodge of clubs now. You're you're trying to qualify. Uh, tell us how the story ends, because that's the best part of it to me. Yeah, not that you so, just gave it away, but no, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. So it uh, it was it was a good day. I mean, it was one of those things where I was in a situation that was uh, way out of my control, right? So I. There, there was nothing I could do. I was just dealt a, a bad hand. So uh, just kind of went about it like it was a normal day. And honestly, I didn't even know it was a story. Like I, when I was out there, I was just playing golf, and it was like, yeah, my, my clubs happened to be stolen. I didn't know it would, uh, went viral like it has. And so you end up shooting a 63, and now you qualify with this random grouping of clubs in your bag. Uh, you're one step closer to sort of living your dream and Titleist is taking care of you. What's what's it been like since this has gone viral and blown up so big for you? Uh, it's it's been pretty crazy, really. I mean, it was that, those first few days. It was nonstop um, talking with media and, and just kind of getting the story out there. Uh, it has slowed down, thankfully. But yeah, it's. I mean, like you said, it's one one step closer to the dream of playing on the PGA Tour. So to get these first eight starts on the Web.com Tour is is uh, very special. Can I can I make it? To, I know you're with Titleist, but I I do have another suggestion for you for somebody that should be sponsoring you, which is. If you've ever heard a tile, you, you may want to yeah. <laughs> put that you, in your bag. You, you put that on your golf bag, and, and then you'll know where your clubs are. <laughs> and that's important. Been just fine. That's important because you're going to be heading to the Bahamas shortly for the first two tournaments of 2019. Are you now going to be concerned every time you go someplace about your clubs? You could carry them on and get a seat or something. I'm gonna sleep with them. Oh my gosh! Yeah, I was. We were joking about that too. Is you know we travel. With, there, there's seven of us on the team, and so so we couldn't do hotel rooms. But I was joking saying. I'm never staying in a rental house again. That's too much. (laughs) Have you gotten any feedback from other golfers on, on what happened with everything? 
a little bit. You know, the the funniest reaction uh, was probably the the couple guys on the putting green uh, warming up uh, before the final round, and and uh, I've had my putter for like seven years now, so it's like kind of known like me and my putter are like a, a unit, right? So. <laughs> And and I'm hitting these other putters on on the practice screen. And these three four guys came up and were like, "Cody, don't tell me you're switching putters." And I was like, "Guys, I'm not. I kind of have to here, you know." <laughs> you're switching everything. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, what's uh? So what's next for you? You, you keep chasing the dream now. Yeah, it's 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 kind of just back to normal, right? We have the same goals of, of getting inside the top 25 on the money list by the end of the year. You know, hopefully we can win a, a few events here and there. And you know, I don't think anything's really changed other than the fact that I don't have my clubs. You spent a, a, a little time uh, playing on the McKenzie Tour in, in Canada. What was that like, and how did that help you out with your game today? Yeah, the McKenzie Tour is great. It's um, you know I always tell people it's it's the hardest tour in the world in terms of money to competition. I mean the the guys up there are so solid and uh, it's it's hard to make a living up there. It really is, but uh, it 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 gives you so much experience week in week out. I mean it really teaches you how to play professional golf. You know it's in college golf maybe you'd have back to back events and you know that was fine. You had people taking care of flights and hotels and whatnot, but uh, the Canadian tour really taught me how to travel and, and how to play professional golf. And, uh, I definitely highly recommend that tour to anybody who's, uh, who's trying to play. I don't know if Jeff would make it on that tour. I'm not, I'm, I'm not, not sure. making it on any. Tour. Yeah. You're not making it on any tour. <laughs> uh, what's it been like sort of this journey for you? You played college golf at, at San Jose state. You're even on the, the tour in Canada. Keep trying to, you know, what's that? Like we always talk on this show about sort of the journey for athletes and the lessons that they learn. You, You've obviously learned a lot along the way here and had a lot that you learned the other day. If you, if you give any of our advice to our listeners, uh, what you got for them? Yeah, you know, I, I think last week or, or two weeks ago really showed me that uh, it, it doesn't have to be perfect, right? I mean, I, I was kind of getting punched in the gut all week, and and then to lose the clubs on top of it, it was, it was one of those things where I kind of learned how to just roll with it. And uh, I think that was the biggest takeaway is – just kind of roll with the punches and uh, and just keep moving, right? Well, it's easy to say. Jeff but, works but, with me, so he yeah, knows it's not perfect, right? <laughs> but but it, it's easy it's easy to say to roll with the punches. But what what you went through? I mean, I can't imagine what it's like to. Uh, I'm a trial lawyer. I can't imagine losing all of my exhibits two hours before I went on trial and just say, <laughs> "All right, we'll print new ones." <laughs> you know. Right. So, so is do you have you always had that kind of personality that you could just kind of roll with the punches or is, is this something that you just said hey look I, I got to do this I don't really have a choice it's either that or quit and quitting's not an option yeah exactly definitely the latter I mean it's like you said I didn't have a choice so it was either it was either walk in or, or try to give it a go and you know I was I was pretty far out of it I mean I was in 75th right so I already had to have a good day and uh, and yeah I don't know I think it was it wasn't really an option i mean it's just kind of a situation i was forced into so, so if if you had to compare yourself to another golfer wh whose game do you most resemble oh man that's a great question i don't know i uh 
He just likes that you know. think he asked him a good question. <laughs> don't worry. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, I don't. I you know I've never thought about that. I don't know. Maybe like a like a Ben Crane. He's kind of known for for hitting it okay, making some putts, but he just he works hard. And I guess I kind of like to uh, to identify that way. So you're just a hard worker out there who uh, who scratches it out and uh, is hoping to make it. That's right. Yeah. Well, I can assure you, Cody, we're going to be following your career every week, uh, and, and we're rooting for you to keep your clubs and, and win tournaments. And uh, we, re- we really do appreciate having you on. It's been a great story, and, and we really will look, watch you going forward. But we have the man on the air right now to ask Who's about Who's probably this. responsible for a lot of the first basemen. Why, why don't you ask him and introduce him, Jeff? So uh, we have Sal. Sal, you on the line? Absolutely. I'm hey, here. Sal. How you doing? Sal. I'm doing fantastic. Everything's going well. How you guys doing? Well, Sal, we're, we're going we're gonna to punt on this. So can you pronounce your last name? <laughs> Jeff didn't want to screw yeah, up on I've the got, air. I've got Sinelli. I'm, I'm Irish. See, I would have been right if we would have said that, but Jeff didn't, Jeff didn't want to screw it up on the air so we let we let him go yeah, with that it's all fine believe me so, so sal sal is joining us uh he is the director of international scouting and is responsible for a lot of the guys that that we have seen and see and probably will see in the future i'm just going to read you the headline of a story that i found when i was doing a little research sal is the story of how an undersized long island catcher became one of the most influential <laughs> men in professional baseball what do you oh, think God. when you see that headline? Nah, I, I think that's overrated. <laughs> I really don't. I don't think that about me at all. Nah, well, so Jeff just doesn't get headlines out. like that, so <laughs> we take what we can get. <laughs> I think somebody paid that guy a lot of money, one of my family members. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, as a matter of fact, that's what the last name of was the person who said it, right? There you go. <laughs> So, another Italian. We we wanted to get back. I mean, you have uh, discovered and and helped develop so many of the players in the Philly system. And I just had the most basic question: What do you do, looking at a fourteen, fifteen, sixteen year old, to determine and and play out the fact that they are going to have the tools? I mean, I saw what you said about Sir Anthony Dominguez when you saw him in two thousand eleven. You know, he was still eighty seven, eighty eight, but but you recognized his body and his sinker on his fastball. What is it that you look for in a player when you want to try and have that fit? You know, first and foremost, I want to say it comes with the staff that I have. You know, the guys that, you know, uh, when I when I originally took the job in 1997, I was fortunate enough to know. You know, I played 11 years in the minor leagues, and I I know a, a friend of mine, Chalau Mendez, who's our Venezuelan. He's like my right hand man. Um, he knew many people in Latin America. You know, I knew many people from playing in the minor leagues, but obviously, I didn't know everyone within the context of, you know, each country. But Chalau is a you know well well respected, well known man in, in Venezuela, Dominican, they all knew him, the Cubans knew him, so I was fortunate enough to have him come in, and then, you know, me and him over the years, we built a staff together, you know, Carlos Salas, and all the guys, I don't want to miss any of the guys' names, but it all starts with those guys, because without our guys, and the Philadelphia Phillies allowing me to hire the guys that we needed to put in place, you know, we wouldn't, we, you know, we wouldn't be where we are today, I mean, you know, I'm not trying to be humble, but the bottom line is, without those guys finding and digging 
these guys out. They show them to us, and we try to make good decisions. But, you know, once they show them to us, I think what it is, I, you know, I kind of, you know, impress on all the guys to make sure that, you know, we see these guys many multiple times to make sure we get to know the guys, make sure they can hit, you know, from an offensive standpoint, you know, make sure a guy like Freddie Galvez or Cesar Hernandez or, you know, Domingo Santana VR, any of the guys that we've signed over the years, you know, that have come out to Franco. You're like, you know, Kobe Perez pushed me on Franco. He really liked me. I've seen him many times. So, you know, and, you know, once I see him and he may have a bad day, but then they got to push me to say, look, he had a bad day. So there's a lot that goes into it, and I want to just give credit to a lot of the guys that, that work in the field. And, you know, I mean, obviously I've been fortunate enough to sign, you know, many of the big league players on the team, but they have a lot to do with it, and that's, it's not only me. You know what I mean? So uh, basically that's number one. But number two is, you know, what do I see on a Serranthi Dominguez? Um, basically I'm a big arm action and delivery guy. When I see a guy, you know, right away the first thing I look is, is he's going to have command of the zone. Is, is his arm going to work? Is he going to be able to, you know, be big enough and strong enough to, you know, to, to be durable enough to, for, for the Philadelphia Phillies to use him at the big league level? Um, can he spin a slider or a curveball? And um, does he have movement on his fastball? So there's a lot of things that go into it. And I'm sorry, I don't want to, you know, dissertation, but that's basically what I look for, you know, as far as the pitch is concerned. So, so when you're looking at a hitter, like, like over the right. last last few years, like Carlos Carlos Toki, Carlos Toki right. was a guy Tochi. that Toki, yeah, well, well, I saw him at Lakewood for I think three years, and, and he he was thin as a pencil, but he clearly yeah. showed talent. How, how do you find a guy who's playing against other guys that aren't necessarily major league level, and figure that 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 16 year old who hasn't gone through his his growth spurt is going to develop a body who's going to be able to handle 162 games, be able to hit for average, and maybe hit for power. Like, how do you figure that out? You know, believe it or not, it's a lot of it goes into looking at the mom and dad. You know, a lot of times you look at them, you know, um, you say to yourself, okay, um, I'm looking at the dad. The dad's 6'3", 220 pounds. He's got a good body. The mom, you know, the whole nine yards is, you know, a lot of it's genetics. Um, Carlos happens to be a guy that it took a long time. It's taking a long time. Now he's with Texas. Um, when I saw Carlos, he had unbelievable back control. He had good contact skills. He was a 6'6 runner at the time and he was a fantastic center fielder. So at that juncture, you know, I took a shot on a guy and I said to myself, you know what, um, I really like this guy's back control. I said if everything happens and, you know, all the stars align, if he gains 20 or 30 pounds, you know, by the time he's 15 or 16, he'll wind up being a guy. Um, it took him a little longer. Obviously, he's still about a 175. He's playing. He's not, you know, you got rule five. And, you know, but so a lot of it's, you know, genetics and, a lot of it's just protecting, you know what I mean? Can you talk about the expansion and the effort that the Phillies have put into um, having more of an international program, the expansion of the Dominican facilities, and, and what you've been able to do in terms of basically creating a pipeline? I mean, Jeff and I have gone around, spent the summer going to a bunch of the different minor league teams in the Phillies system, and, I mean, you got players from all over the place there, and you helped to find them. Can you talk about the expansion of that program in the Philly system. 
Well, you know, obviously, you know, we need resources. I mean, um, number one, you know, you know, John Middleton, you know, the whole everyone that's involved. I mean, from the top down, you know, Andy McPhail, Matt Clintac, Brian Minetti, all these guys, you know, you know, and going back with Benny Looper and Ruben. I mean, they put a lot of money into, you know, allowing me, trusting me to put a new facility. We have the most state-of-the-art facility in, in Dominican Republic right now. Uh, Brian Minetti came over last year. We put together an unbelievable, uh, you know, in, um, Asian program. Right now we have some of the top scouts in Asia. We just added almost seven, eight scouts in Asia. We've added more scouts in Latin America. You know, we're doing more in Colombia. Um, we still, we're one of the only two teams to have a academy in Venezuela. Um, we're, you know, we're big in Venezuela. All that can't be done without the backing of the organization, and they've fully backed us up, and, you know, we were fortunate enough, if you look at our team, you know, to get guys like, you know, Galvez and, and, and uh, what's his name, uh, excuse me, uh, Cesar. Cesar Hernandez, and, you know, obviously, Carrera, but we have a lot of guys, uh, you know, uh, you know, Herrera, and, uh, you know, we have uh, uh, Uribe Ramos, um, there's a lot, we have a big culture of Venezuelans, and, you know, we want to be good in every country, and I think, whether it's the United States, you know, Latin America, the Asian countries, the Philadelphia Phillies are completely engaged in trying to get the Phillies to be the top. So we, you know, we don't need any great facilities. We're getting backing from resources, and right now, thank God that they've given us an opportunity to go out and do this, and it's you know been a blessing. You know, I've noticed that with the Phillies, they do seem to be putting more into scouting at a time where I get concerned. See, I don't believe in analytics as much as a lot of people do. I believe that there's right. a place for it, but I believe that that the human eye and, and scouts are more important to the game. And I noticed the other day the Mariners, I think, cut 10 scouts from, from their system. Yeah. What is it about the Phillies that, that they're trusting in the process of scouting vers- and using analytics versus just diving in and analytics replacing scouting? Well, you know, first and foremost, I mean, it's really important that we look at, you know, overall, analytics is a fantastic tool for us to use. I mean, I always thought it was, you know, whether you, you know, we always need to find out the on-base percentage. We need to know things about the kids. And, you know, the numbers tells us a lot about the kids, but also your eyes tell you something also. So I think from the both perspectives, the more if we have analytics, we have a great combination of, you know, you know, old-time scouts, and we have good new young guys that are giving us information and together we make the decisions i mean matt's been fantastic with that he takes us he, he listens to what we have to say he takes the numbers and he and, and then he comes up with a you know with a good you know a good decision at the end of the day and i think we really do we need the numbers we need good scouts and i think at the end of the day if you utilize both of them we're gonna we're gonna make good decisions that's just my opinion i i truly believe that you know what i mean i really do how do you as a scout not fall in love with the idea of somebody. I, I watch people all the time, and, and it happens ourselves. We watch players, and you see them perform really well one time, and, and it's kind of an anomaly. That's not who they are. How do you make sure you, you don't fall in love and really do your due diligence to get some of the players that you've been able to identify? Is that a, a difficult process for you, or is it something that after all these years, you're just kind of, you look at it, and you're like, oh, he's got it. He doesn't. <laughs> 
You know what? You know what? The, that's a really good question. And the reason why it's a great question is because there's a lot of parts to scouting that people probably in the general audience, they don't do it every day. So they don't understand. Um, in the international market, it's at times, you know, guys make, you know, you know, uh, you sign a guy at 16 years old. The guys are real young. You know, we have to take a lot into consideration. Number one is sometimes you go to a tournament, the kid's 16 years old, and you have to make a quick decision on the guy. The guy may have been hurt. The guy may have been this different reasons. Now you look at a guy and you say, geez, I got to make a decision. He's ready to sign. You know, I'm sitting here at a tournament. I'm looking at the Dodgers scout, who's a good friend of mine, and I'm looking at the Mets scout, and I'm looking at the Yankee scout, and I'm, and I'm saying, well, who's going to make the first call on, you know, throwing out money out there? <laughs> and sometimes when you see a guy's tools, you want to jump on the guy. And sometimes you just kind of say, well, I don't know what his makeup is, but his tools are so good. So even so the, the bottom line, what it comes down to is it's kind of a tricky deal. Ninety percent, ninety, I'd say 95 percent of the time I do the due diligence to back up, make sure our scouts know the player. When we like a player, we find out about the family. We see where he comes from, you know, what kind of you know habits he has, you know, all the things that are important, especially if we're going to give a guy, you know, quite a sum of money. We want to make sure that he's the right kid for the Philadelphia Phillies. And we want to make sure that he has great makeup for the Philadelphia Phillies organization. Um, at times, it's difficult to do that. But I think overall, we do the best job we can to find out everything we can. I, I will get, I could tell you this, I will get very upset if somebody tells me a kid has tremendous makeup and when he comes, he doesn't have good work ethic because, as you know, in baseball, if you don't have good work ethic, you won't go too far. Well, you know and, what I mean? And you, so we need to know those things. You mentioned the personality and the family, and that's one of the things that Jeff and I have been most impressed by going around to the teams is is some of these players, how, how mature they are and how grounded they are. And it seems like you you look for that as much as their ability to play. It, it is that work ethic. It is that that drive to buy in and be the best that you seem to try and identify along with those those good uh, base to build off of from the experience that they have from their parents. Is If there's a ranking system, what's the most important thing? Obviously, they have to have a skill set, but if they have a skill set and they, they can't process it or they don't have the grounding, the skills will be a waste. What's the most important factor that you kind of rank as you go through that? I mean, obviously, there's a lot of different things. Number one is, you know, you know, how stable is he? Like, how how is his family life? You know, uh, you know, is he is he a kid that? I mean, if he spends some time, fortunately, Major League Baseball allows us to keep a kid in the academy for 30 days. We got there for 15 days. We get to know the kid. Our coaches, our managers, they understand what we have to do, and we work together with Manny Amador and you know Carlos Salas and all the coaches, Lester Stryker. They have so much experience down there. If I leave a kid at the academy, sometimes when I'm there, they show their best behavior. But when I'm not there, you know what I mean? You know, maybe they'll, you know, the guys will get to know. I, I get to know whether the guy's a hard worker. But if you're going to ask me the first, the number one thing, for me, it's work ethic. I mean, the bottom line, look, the bottom line is you have to have ability. And the guys we all see have a certain amount of ability. We bring guys to the academy with ability. But the bottom line is if a guy doesn't have a, a good work ethic and, you know, doesn't have a good mindset, he's not going to 
you know, you have some bad habits, whatever they may be. Um, you know, that guy's not. It's gonna be. It's gonna be tough for him to make it because you know it, it's so hard to make it. So if a guy, you know, doesn't work hard and doesn't give you 100% every day, the guy that works harder winds up being better than him, and the coaches don't even want to put up with guys that don't want to work hard. I mean, it's just too much. It's a long day. So anyway, you know, what, what I'm saying is I think the work ethic, you know, is always going to help with talent. If you have talent and work ethic, you wind up being a superstar, in my opinion, or a very good player. That's just my opinion. Yeah, and, e and even if you have the talent and the work ethic, there's so many other players that, that you you deal with that have a similar level of talent and work ethic. Correct. And, and, and you know, with with the guys that get drafted, like this year, like Alec Bohm, he's he's already been through sure. college. He's he's a lot more mature. Sure. He's obviously closer to the majors. How is it that that you have to participate in getting the organization to be patient with these guys? Because they're, I mean, some of the guys that we look at, that we go down and see, they've been in the organization since they were 16. Sir Anthony sure. Dominguez is now 23, and he's right. he's he's budding. So, it, it, does there come a time where you have to sit down as the organization and your staff and and have these tough discussions and almost have to to be advocates for these these young men as to look you got to be more patient Just with be them. a little more patient yeah a little well, while longer well like like, like you know we right. we preach that on the show a lot because everybody wanted to give up like on mickey moniac after five minutes and it turns out now he's turning <laughs> it around and jalen you know, jalen ortiz who you may have had a lot to do with sure. he, he had a little tough beginning and now he's turning it on but it requires a level of patience that that how do you deal with that and how do you that, educate that with all due respect Phillies fans don't often have <laughs> <laughs> well well you know that's another great question the, the bottom line is this Joe Jordan's our minor league director you know with Brian Minetti who's now here and Matt and all the guys involved and I'll be I'll be quite frank with you you know you guys know I've been with the Phillies for almost 30 years now I, I got traded here in 1989 from the Cardinals and I've been here for I will say this and, and, and it's not just just kind of saying it to say it, it's the honest to God truth is that our minor league people with Manzolino and all the guys that are out there, Andy Abad and Joe Jordan, they understand. First of all, Joe Jordan was a scouting director. He understands patience. Um, I think these guys trust me and our staff. We have a great relationship with the minor leagues. I mean, when I go in there, I'm, I'm in there every spring training. I give my opinion. If I give my opinion, they all listen. Um, they, they put guys where we think they should go. We talk. They put guys where they think they should go. We all work together. And to be quite frank with you, that's what you need to have. I, I feel nothing. Like if there's something I don't see, I see, I call and I say, hey, Joe, you know, this kid, I think, you know, you could do a little better. We're bringing him over. Joe or Joe will call me and we'll talk about a kid coming over from the Dominican Republic. We have a great relationship. We don't take things personal. I think that the overall atmosphere with the Phillies is, is a family. I think uh, we all get along and I mean is there times we get in arguments about players we really get in arguments I think we all know the players that are good um, but overall I just think that yeah the people get tired of looking at a guy occasionally yeah I think that one thing I will tell you is that the Philadelphia Phillies will exhaust a player with talent to the end 
I really believe that, and I think that it's a testament to our minor league staff because, you know, it really is. If I called him up tomorrow and said, hey, Joe, let's do this with this guy, he'd say, okay, let's, you know, I see what you're saying. Well, let's work it out. You know, it's there's not that. There's not a lot of ego involved. So that's what makes it all work, and I think it's evident at the big league level, you know, with all the young guys we have up there and the talent we have, I think we've been fortunate enough with our minor league people, and I think it's all a family, and it's a very good system between scouting and development. Usually, scouting and development on heads, but not here. So you've, you've come a long way, because in 93, when you, they asked you to be a scout, <laughs> I read yeah. your response was, the only thing I know about scouting is that it's old guys in chairs. So, <laughs> so it, seems, I got on that one. it seems like you've gotten past that and, and come around, and I mean, it seems like you've really not only developed yourself, but I mean, I like to hear how you credit other people. To me, that's a sign of good leadership. Well, somebody I, who I who, who gives credit rather than takes credit, and and it's what's most impressive is the team that you've put around yourself. Because clearly, you can't find all these people by yourself. But to delegate the no. responsibility to other people and then trust them that they're going to bring you somebody that isn't going to put you out on the line. What was it like to sort of make that adjustment and build that system up for you personally? You know, it all was funny because I'm Italian, obviously. My name's—I mean, you guys could kind of figure that out. But you know, I took Spanish. I have a degree in Spanish, and I've always, you know, played in the minor leagues. It was easy because you know my parents were both from Italy, and I spoke Italian. It was a very easy transition to you know kind of pick up Spanish. And and my father always told me, hey, take Spanish because you know Italy's one country, and you could take Spanish. And you know, as as I went along, I you know I met a lot of the Spanish guys, and and we wound up being you know good friends and, and, and I got lucky enough to, to be in the position I am by by basically, you know, learning the the, the, the language. You follow what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So uh, basically at the end of the day, that's I think that that's what got me to be you know, to be where I am. And I, I gotta give thanks to a guy like Mike Arbuckle who allowed me to hire the people, you know, back then when I started, you know, you know, and, and build a staff. It was hard to do it. But at the end of the day Little by little by little, you know, you, you kind of figure out the, the qualities and people that I play with. I try to hire guys that I play with in the minor leagues um, that had good work ethic. And then me and Jesus Mendez, Chalau Mendez, uh, would, would sit down and talk about the people. And, you know, anybody I really wanted to go with, Betty Looper, we'd sit down and we'd talk about guys. And, you know, we'd hire the guys that we thought were best for the job. And I, it was difficult. It took a long period of time. But one thing I do... You know, think that overall is cohesiveness over a period of time. We've kept our group together so long, and to keep this group is so important. And I think over a period of time, if you can keep a group together that has ability and the people have work ethics and they love the organization and they love the way they're treated, you have to treat people good. If you treat them good, they'll treat you good. And the organization has treated us well, and they've treated all our staff. And we continue to add. Like what Brian Minetti always says, it's one thing he's always like, hey, Sal, let's always find the best people. And as we go along, we just keep hiring good people, and they make us look good. So that's why I always give kudos to those people. So it's been a little bit of, you know, it's it's been hard. It's been a long period of time. It's been 21 years, 22 years. But, you know, over the period of time, you know, we've got, I think we've gotten to the staff where we're pretty good at what we do. 
So uh, we are going to have on, if he's not already on, Ali Horowitz. And Ali is the author of the book, An American Caddy in St. Andrews. Ali, are you there? I am. How's it going, Jeff? Thanks for joining us. Thank are you kidding? Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. This is Jason here with Jeff. When he approached me about having you on, he couldn't stop telling me all the different stories of the things that you've done. So you've given Jeff like constant entertainment for at least the last week. Just I'm glad to hear. In the places that you've gone, you, you want you have my life, <laughs> the life that I want. I still want my. Just so it's clear, Jan and Alex, I still want you in it, but <laughs> but but I want to do all the things that you're doing. <laughs> well, the next the next ones I do, you can be my uh, my travel buddy on that. I'll be your caddy. <laughs> that I'll, sounds good. Ollie, be careful what you offer, okay? <laughs> Jeff Jeff will call you back and he will take you up on that. Can you tell us how this all happened? I I mean, I've watched the Open for years on TV to hear you were a caddy there. Tell our listeners a little bit about the life of Ollie getting to this point. Sure. So I grew up in New York City. Um, actually just played Beth Page Black about uh, two hours ago. Jealous. Came straight from the course to do the interview. And, uh, See, I that's not out. nice. Wait, wait, wait. wait. <laughs> See, that's not nice. That's just rubbing our noses in it. We're, we're well, the course wasn't nice to me. It oh, kicked okay. my butt. That, that makes us feel better about it. <laughs> the greens are awesome, by the way. Um, so, yeah, I grew up in the city, and I grew up playing all the public golf courses in, in uh, the Bronx and Staten Island and Brooklyn and Queens. There's like, I don't know, like eight public courses in New York. And I started playing when I was nine and I just, I loved it. And uh, we had this weird connection to St. Andrews though um, for a long time. My mom's English and uh, my great uncle lived in St. Andrews and not just lived there. He was a, uh, he was kind of a local politician there uh, for like 50 years in, in St. Andrews. So we always had this, this weird total insider connection there. So we started going when I was 12, maybe, to visit St. Andrews and, and to start playing golf there. And, and I always knew Uncle Ken as this eccentric, old, English, hilarious uh, great uncle with this funny giggle and a Jack Russell Terrier named Bonnie. Um, and I loved it. And But then uh, I actually went to school there for my freshman year of college as a gap year. Um, and I played on the golf team there, and I just loved it. And I started caddying that summer uh, after the freshman year at St. Andrews. And that summer led to, uh, as you know, many, many, many more summers of caddying there. So what's the what's it like to be an American golfer over at St. Andrews? I mean, you have kind of a unique story, even though you've you've had this connection. I mean, I, I dream of playing at that course. And, and I mean, I grew up working on the grounds crew at a local golf course and you get to be on that beauty out there as a caddy. Uh, what's been the best experience for you as a caddy so far? I mean, obviously, the people you've you've caddied with athletes and non-athletes. I mean, you could probably tell us stories the rest of the show. Well, it's great. I mean, it's it's, it's, I started caddying there uh, when I was 18, just finished freshman year. Um, I was a 1.8 handicap then, so I played okay, and I, I knew the course well because we played, played, okay. played okay. Played <laughs> yeah. okay. would kill for a 1.8 handicap. Well, I probably shot 100 today, so that's that's not happening uh, right I'd now. I'd kill for that, yeah. too. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, you know, I showed up, and I thought, oh, you know, I, I caddied when I was 12, 13, 14. This will be easy to, to come in here at the, the old course caddy shack in St. Andrews and just waltz in. And, oh, my God, was that absolutely not the case because the, the old Scottish guys just hated me because I was a student. And I was 18. I was American. I talked a lot. And uh, and guess what? I was the scum of the caddy earth <laughs> when that, that first summer. They just hated me. And uh, the, fir the first day I'm caddying for 
in this group of uh, American women, and I was a, a shadow caddy. I wasn't even a trainee caddy then. I was a shadow. So what you do is you follow an older caddy around the course for this first round, and he's sort of your mentor. And so I thought this was going to go great, and uh, I, you know, was happily chatting to the ladies by the first tee. And then as we're walking up, the the old caddy uh, grabs me aside and motioned to his mouth and said, "See, see what I'm pointing to? Shut it." <laughs> <laughs> and that was day one of my caddy career. That's Actually, since then we've player. become very good friends, me and uh, me and Kenny. But that was how it went for the first couple months. So it just, every day I was making the the mistakes of the inner caddy code that no, no one teaches you. You're just thrown to the wolves when you start. Well, so I'm I'm going to be a little selfish here. My, sure. My son is a, is a caddy right now. Oh, uh, awesome. Uh, he's 16. So what what are these inner code taboo things Jeff that you're not supposed to do? By the way, Jeff sure. hates unwritten rules. It doesn't matter if he hates <laughs> all and, or... And by the way, he doesn't listen to the show, so this is going to be great because I'm going to tell him to do all the things that you're <laughs> saying not to do. Right. No, that's how it goes. It's, it's the hazing. <laughs> um, I would say, you know, number one is you have to respect the seniority. The guys who have been there forever, and again, I've catted at St. Andrews together for 11 summers. That's nothing over there. There's guys that have caddied for 40 years, Are you 50 kidding? years over there. Wow. So when you're out there, you you defer to the older guys. You know, you defer to them. If you, you don't act showy, you don't question other caddy out on the course. Even if he gave a wrong uh, yardage off the tee, you, you don't question it. You don't act like a big shot. And uh, guess what? You also you also have to uh, pull a lot of the pins. That's another inner caddy pull thing. Pull the pin. You got to tend the pins. Okay. If you're if you if you get a reputation as not grabbing the pins, that's really bad in the shack. <laughs> Jeff, Jeff, you need like to take this back. Like, they'll actually say, like, what happened? Do you get hit with pins when you were a kid? What the <laughs> hell? Jeff, you need to take this back and make sure that Alex is prepared for what he that's has right. to do. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, you've had, along with athletes, you've had some famous non-athletes that you've caddied for. I mean, I saw Larry David, Bon Jovi, Huey Lewis. <laughs> what's, what's, the, what's the best person that you've been with? Or uh, that may be, like, choosing between what's your favorite no, most, kid. most fun. <laughs> what's, what's the most fun you've had with non-athletes out there? And, and by the way, we have a lot of slang on the golf course, and uh, if you hit a putt and it comes up way short, that's a Bon Jovi, halfway there. Oh. Yeah, we, get, we got a lot of them. So you, um, you but, got them uh, there. Yeah, well, we have this really cool thing at the end of the season called the Dunhill, and it's coming up in October. It's the equivalent of AT&T Pebble Beach, but for the UK. So it's at Carnoustie Old Course in Kings Barnes, and it's a pro-am, celebrity pro-am. So that's where the Open is, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, so so we'll, we can talk about that later because I've, I've caddied at Carnoustie and the Dunhill. Oh, we, will. we got questions. Don't worry. Four, <laughs> five, six times now. God, that's a scary course. Um, <laughs> that's the scariest of the three by far. But, uh, but so many cool guys come and play there. So through the Dunhill, I've had, let's see, we had Michael Douglas in our group. We had Andy Garcia, Tico Torres, who's the drummer for Bon Jovi. Um, and then you get put with so many pros. So we had Lee Westwood, Martin Keimer, uh, Roy McElroy. We had Dustin Johnson a couple years ago. That was pretty cool. Nice. He, he kills it. <laughs> he can drive. He can drive it far. He on crushed that it. Uh, poor Hugh, because I caddy for Huey Lewis every year at that, and he's um, Huey's a wonderful golfer. He's Huey Lewis of, of the news, as 
as you, you had guys had probably know. with him with a bunker, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, there's such a great moment. That was the 2009. He couldn't get out, and then the bunker is so deep that no one in the crowd could see what he was doing in there, so he finally just threw the ball out to be oh, funny. <laughs> and guess what? It goes in, and everyone thought he held it out. It was hilarious. <laughs> it was so funny. What did you write down on the card? <laughs> I, I That was pre-Oliver. That was uh, that was a different caddy for Huey. That was back in 09. <laughs> what did that caddy write down on the card? Pr- probably, uh, I'll never forget that moment. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's amazing. What's but it? it's great, and the Dunhill is a really it's a really fun event because the pros are having fun there. The celebrities are great, and it's it's a fun way to end the season because you are you are inside the ropes. You're walking alongside the pros, talking to Ernie Els, talking to to Rory, and uh, you're there. And a lot of the a lot of the caddies guys are living in a sense they're living the life of their dreams because they all wanted to be pros like me. Uh, I did as well when we were kids, but in a, in a sense this is the next best thing because they're getting to make golf their lives and hanging with all the pros and stuff. It's, that's why, it's just that's why we do a sports radio show because we're not going exactly. to play sports, so we just talk about it and then go to games. Hey, speak for yourself. <laughs> so so uh, with regard to, there's one guy that you caddied for who's one of my favorites, Larry David. Oh my God. What, 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 now, does he actually act like he does on his show? Well, I've got great news here. He's exactly like he is in the show, except he's a really nice guy. <laughs> but all of the neuroses are there. All of the nervousness and paranoia is there. Um, he's a 15 handicap, but he gets really nervous in matches. And I think I played it cool for like nine holes. And then I was like, hey, Larry, I know every single line to curb your enthusiasm. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you know, can Jewish still be kid a- from New York City. It was the best five hours of my entire life. So you, you're still a fan as you go through this. Like it's for you, it's like, wow, I'm out here with people who I actually watch, and it's it's something that's that's exciting to you. It seems like in your voice. Well, that's a good point. I mean, it, what's really interesting is you get to meet these people, but it's not just meeting them, right? Like you're not just shaking their hand. These guys are relying on you for five hours on a course with 30 mile an hour winds gusting to 50 and pop bunkers bigger than like the first floor of a house sometimes, and rough and you know and it's raining and it's cold and your shower doesn't have hot water it's like they rely on you and so when bill clinton comes and plays the the old course and and my friend kevin o'donnell is catting for him kevin didn't just meet a president of the united states like he literally did battle with him i I think that's so cool and and everyone comes to the old course you're literally in the bunker with the president at that point yeah (laughs) did he did he he toss one everybody comes yeah (laughs) (laughs) pulled a huey lewis there does he have a foot wedge so i have another question jeff jeff told me about a golf course in australia and i want to hear about this longest golf course that you've played on i want to play oh yeah i want to play this it sounds so cool so you guys got to do a live show from nullarbor links from that golf course that sounds here's the deal with that here's the deal with that it's this is so much fun it's called nullarbor links it is the longest golf course in the world because every hole is in a different town. Now, it takes five days to play because it's about 100 miles from every green to the next tee box. 
That's a big golf course. See, it's, it's good. It's right by the way, the Australian outback. So you're literally driving through the de- you know through the desert, through uh, you know through kangaroo-infested like roads. Where we I hit and killed a wombat by accident on the second night of no. driving, oh. which was terrifying. Oh no! Is I don't have confirmation it died. I just I think I heard it very badly. By the way, but you, did, it was you did a better job explaining what it is than Jeff did because when he explained it to me, I thought that literally it was just a really long golf course, and I was like, well, how many shots do you? <laughs> It's like how, how many how many strokes how many does it strokes take to go 100 kilometers? It's five days. Like I don't understand. <laughs> so how did this come about? This was truckers that they could go from town to town and exactly. Play? So the Nullarbor is a incredibly long road that stretches through the outback, and it's basically just truckers. And so there was a humongously high rate of accidents on the road because it's just you have one stretch which is the longest straightaway in all of Australia. <laughs> just there's no turn for like eight hours or whatever. So people were falling asleep at the wheel and getting an accident. So to sort of create a diversion and to stop the guys from, you know, just driving all night, they would have, uh, they set up this golf course. And apparently the first year the golf course came into uh, existence, it slashed accidents along the Nullarbor in half. Wow. Golf saves so, lives. Yeah. So you're <laughs> playing slogan. in yeah. some of the craziest environments I've ever played golf in. You're playing uh, just like, it, it is rough and tumble. There's one uh, There's one hole that goes through a firing range, shooting range. There's another hole that goes across an airplane runway. That sounds like both could be rather dangerous. <laughs> yeah, it's very north by northwest. <laughs> You're like, you got a plane like <laughs> landing as you putt. I mean, you yeah. don't need to tell the audience to be quiet if you got a jet engine over your head. What? So. It's, so, it's crazy. So I, it was I, so much fun. And I was with one of my best friends, Miles Ashton, who actually, uh, we can talk about later, was my, uh, my travel buddy in Nepal. But Miles and I played the golf course, and uh, Miles is kind of a beginning golfer. So I gave him, uh, we decided to have a contest, and I gave him 30 shots on the front nine. And I'd made all of them up and was beating him after the front nine, so I gave him 50 more on the back nine. And then Miles started getting really, really good, and he beat me. And I think I shot 150, and he shot like 145, and he beat me. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So let's let's get to Nepal, because right? yeah. the way that you and I uh, caught up was, was I had seen a 60-minute story on a golfer in Nepal named Pratima, and I had reached out to see about her. And you responded to me. And so can you tell me a little bit about, in our audience, a little bit about who Pratima is and how you got involved? Sure. So I was in Nepal two years ago uh, with, with Miles and with our friend Vlad. And we were there first to climb to Everest Base Camp. But, but I was also writing a Golf Digest article. Um, actually, this one's for Lynx Magazine about all the golf courses in Nepal. Because there's six courses in Nepal, 700 golfers. It's Himalayan golf. And uh, the courses are fantastic. So, so we're at the oldest course, Royal Nepal Golf Club. It's 100 years old as of last year. And so everybody at this course is telling us the same thing. They're like, you have to meet this girl, Pratima. And we're like, uh, okay. So, so I meet Pratima. She comes up to meet us. At this point, she's uh, 16 years old. She's the best female golfer in Nepal, number one, and lives in a shed on the fourth hole of Royal Nepal Golf Club. 
So literally, she lives in the maintenance shed. So her parents are, are essentially laborers on the course, both work on the golf course. They, they don't make a lot of money. Uh, she, she grew up in the shed, and it's just off the third green by the fourth tee. And so she came and did the interview with us, and, and it was wonderful, and, and she wore you know, a, a nice golf shirt. I find out later that was the nicer of the two golf shirts that she owned. Amazing. And so I, I just think, oh my God, this is this is just ridiculous that the number one female golfer in Nepal is living in a shed. What a, what what a crazy just I, I don't even know where you would start with that. But I just said I want to tell people about her because this is amazing. So you know I, I I've now caddied in St Andrews for 11 summers. It's how I get to know people. It's how I'm you know comfortable with people on a golf course. And I thought you know what let's play golf right now and I'm going to caddy for you Pratima and let's just go play nine holes. And, and I want to hear about what's up. And so I took the bag, and she said she teed off on one, and we just went. And it was – I've done a lot of caddy rounds. That was my favorite caddy round of my entire life. It was just wonderful. Like, Vlad, Miles were following. I was caddying for Pratima. And people were watching from outside. Now, the course runs right alongside the, the, the ring road. And a lot of people look in and are seeing Pratima playing, which is very strange in Nepal for a woman to be playing golf. It's, it's very rare. And to see an American guy carrying her bag. So people were, were like, stopping and looking. And I don't know, guys. It was just uh, – it was a very special uh, two hours. And where did she get her golf clubs? So that's a great point. She was discovered by a pro at Royal Nepal at age 11. And uh, RNGC, Royal Nepal Golf Club, gave, gave her clubs. And the Nepal Golf Association saw that she was getting good. And so they gave her lessons. Her coach, Sachin Batari, is, like, the sweetest guy ever. He's been donating his lessons for free this entire time, and she got good, like, really fast. She started winning tournaments. She's won, like, 35 golf tournaments. So, guys, you go into the shed. The shed is, by the way, it's smaller than most people's kitchens, right? Like, there's essentially 20% of the shed is for her and her mom and dad, and 80% of the shed are for lawnmowers. It's where all the equipment's kept. Oh, goodness. So, right. So, in this little shed, it's packed with, guess what, trophies that she's won. Oh, <laughs> just everywhere yeah. it's trophies. So, I, I mean, I could I could listen to you tell stories about her all day, but I have so many other <laughs> questions I want to get to you before we get to the Open. What I hear you've, uh, you've teed off from some unique locations. What's the highest place you've ever teed off from? Sure. Well, the, the highest place was at Everest Base Camp, and uh, that was 17,600 feet. Is that when you talked to uh, I'd love to say that I, I crushed the ball, but I absolutely did not. I could barely tee it up. I was so tired and, uh, you know, dealing with altitude sickness. Did you find I hit this, it? I hit, no. Well, guess what? I hit this really crappy low line drive and it went about 120 yards into a crevasse. And I was trying to, I was trying to collect it, you know, because I brought the ball all the way up with my driver from, from the, the bottom. And my uh, our guide, Gelsen, our Sherpa guide, said, if you go into the crevasse, you will not come back out. <laughs> That's when you don't chase yeah. the ball and, right. <laughs> and I heard you taught the Sherpas how to play a little bit too. You know, when I was going up there, I uh, I just had this, this golf club in my backpack and it was sticking up and, and it was drawing a lot of stares from everybody. People were like, who the hell is this idiot? Or or also, what is that? What is that? <laughs> it was a great conversation starter everywhere. And I was teaching, uh, you know, some Sherpa how to play golf. So we, we ran into these assistant uh, monks or the apprentice monks at about 13,000 feet who are all about 11 years old. 
and uh, I gave them a, a little golf lesson at like 13,000 feet, so that was fun. You should have made them carry your bags. <laughs> but I do, I do want to, uh, I do want to mention with Pratima that uh, it's pretty amazing. A lot of cool stuffs happened, and ESPN did this big documentary on her that is now available to watch. It's called A Mountain to Climb. Okay. And uh, she, the next step now, I think, is she might be coming to the U.S. for college. How exciting is that for you to see? Oh my, it's it's well, selfishly, it just makes me feel really good every time Pratima does something, you know, uh, that makes me proud. It's just, it's it's super cool. I mean, she came over last year to uh, to live in California for a month and train, train with this wonderful pro, Don Parsons, who, again, donated all his time for free, and she got really good. She won a, a couple tournaments in California, and uh, we've got this fundraiser we've been doing for her at teampratima.com, T-E-A-M-P-R-A-T-I-M-A, Team Pratima, and the next step guys is this really could happen she might be coming to the u.s for college next year so now, it's very exciting now has she, has she played in tournaments on the lpga tour uh not yet um here's what i would say her ceiling is incredibly high um i don't know if the lpga is her story we'll, we'll see um i think she's good enough um but there's a long road to go and the first step is you got to think if she's at a division one college playing college golf somewhere warm like california or arizona or something she's gonna get so good so let's let's see you know the, the journey for pratima is just beginning by the way speaking of the lpga uh, we had uh, somebody you might know on a couple weeks ago paula kramer oh my god <laughs> we, we how heard cool you is had, that we heard you had fun at her birthday <laughs> well i mean i had fun she probably didn't i uh, <laughs> i bought her a tequila shot for her uh 21st birthday at the dunvegan <laughs> and it got roars from the crowd from all the adults, but she was not, uh, she wasn't so into it. Yeah, right. we, we had I, I did do a tequila shot with her. That was very fun. We had on her a few weeks ago when she was playing at the LPGA in South Jersey. Uh, and oh, so great. She was great. She was, she was a lot of fun to talk to. Uh, your book, obviously, is An American Caddy in St. Andrews, so we'd be remiss if we don't ask you about the Open Championship before we let you go. What sets Carnousie apart? You said it's probably the most difficult of the three courses. What is it that makes it so difficult besides the uh, that's a great. That's a great question it's it's called carnasty that's carnasty. the nickname okay and we have a rivalry between all the all the caddy shacks like st andrews carnusty etc and apparently as the, the the story goes if american golfers are ever playing at carnusty and they're like brutally overwhelmed with the course and they ask their caddies like man when did the easy hold start <laughs> the caddies say when you get to st andrews oh. <laughs> <laughs> but carnusty is a beast all right here a couple couple things Every single tee shot, and it, this applies to the Dunhill as well for the amateur tees, every tee shot, with the exception of probably the first hole, there are runouts to bunkers. Now, that's not always the case, so you have to be so incredibly vigilant with your yardages and your lines off the tee, because if you let, you know, if you let your focus go for one tee shot, you're in a bunker, and they're pop bunkers. You should just carry a beach chair if you're caddying for me, because we'd spend all day in the sand. <laughs> They're more. They're more at St. Andrews. The 126 bunkers in St. Andrews, but oh the ones, goodness. the ones at Carnoustie are just as scary. A lot of places uh, to lose my golf ball. And there's, like, you know, it's funny because you, you're, you're so close to the water, you don't actually see um, the water from the course ever. But there's a lot of uh, what we call burns, which are little streams, and they they seem to run throughout the course a lot. The 16th hole, oh my God, it's the hardest par three I've ever seen. It's like you're hitting. Dri guys will be hitting driver if they're into the wind. Sometimes it's like a 270. 260 part a, a three. driver 
on a par three? Yeah. Oh, my God. It's crazy. 17 and 18 are beasts. Um, I've asked a lot of tour caddies who I meet in the Dunhill, like, which course, not even just in the Dunhill, but which course keeps you up at night before tournaments, and all of them say Carnoustie. So it's just, it's like the tee shots that run onto these pop bunkers so easily, and the approach shots almost every approach shot you're just on edge like it's vi- it's visually very intimidating the entire time so it's going to be a great test next week thank you so much for joining us this week on the heart of sports with jason springer and jeff cohen we'll be back live with a new show next friday night so make sure to join us next friday night to help you start your weekend in style have a great one and we'll be back to talk to you next week